Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Any Western fans in the room? Like Westerns, movies? Western, no? no? Very few? Okay. All right, a few. We got a few Western fans. My, I grew up, say what? You love your Western. All, all day. All day. I'll just watch the Western channel all day. So I, growing up, my grandfather absolutely loved Westerns. I watched Westerns with him all the time, especially Gunsmoke. He was, all right. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. Oh, yeah. Gun, Gunsmoke was our favorite. Um, and I'll tell you what, no film or, what, or movie or show does a better job of portraying revenge and vengeance and retaliation than a Western, right? Well, that's like the premise of every Western ever. Some outlaw did something, and now the lawman's got to go get him. Like, that's just, that's it. That's, it's like a Hallmark Christmas movie. You know the plot before you even turn it on. That's just the way it goes. Um, now, I was listening to a podcast this past week, and I was listening to someone interview a Catholic priest who was talking about demonic stuff. And the priest referenced this scene from the movie Tombstone um, and said that this scene from the movie Tombstone kind of uh, summed up what he considered or what he thought was the devil's full motivation better than anything he'd ever seen. And uh, I felt bad because as a fan of Westerns growing up, I felt like I should have seen Tombstone. I was nine when Tombstone came out. It's a classic, never seen it. Uh, but there's this one scene in Tombstone where uh, Kurt Russell playing Wyatt Earp and Val Kilmer playing Doc Holliday are in this room. And Doc is sick, and they've been going after this guy named Johnny Ringo. Johnny Ringo is the criminal, uh, the, the outlaw of Tombstone. And Wyatt Earp is saying, I finally figured out what my purpose is. I've got to get Ringo. And he, he asks Doc Holliday... Um, what motivates Johnny Ringo? And this is, this is the exchange they have. Wyatt says, I spent my whole life not knowing what I wanted out of life, just chasing my tail. Now, for the first time, I know exactly what I want and who. And that's the damnable misery of it. What makes a man like Ringo, Doc? What makes him do the things he does? And Doc responds, a man like Ringo got a great empty hole right through the middle of him. He can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to ever fill it. Wyatt says, what does he need? Doc responds, revenge. Wyatt, for what? Doc, being born. Just existing. And in this podcast I was listening to, the priest said, I think that's the devil's motivation. The devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's just resentful for being but not being what he wants to be, right? The devil's resentful for being, but for not being God. How dare you make me, but not make me like you, not make me God, not make me with what I want to be. And I thought that, that sums up evil really well, but, but, it, but it roots evil in a heart 
of bitterness and resentment and retaliation. It roots evil in pride, which we consider the highest sin, the the sin of all sins, the sin that births all other sin. Pride being self-centeredness, being I want to be God. I want to run things. And when I want to be God and I realize I am not, it builds bitterness within me. It builds resentment within me. And in this chapter in Esther that we're in, we see how the lengths that bitterness will go to to get the revenge and the retaliation that it wants. That when we as people let resentment, we let bitterness grow up within us and become a root within us, it inevitably leads to the dehumanization and the destruction of other people. Now, that's what's happening. That's the center of the book of Esther. That's why we hear, we're here in chapter 5. It's the center of the book. There are 10 chapters in Esther. The 10th chapter hardly even counts. It's like five verses. The, we're right in the middle of this book, and we're at the hinge of the story. So just to anchor us in where we've been, Esther starts in the city of Susa, one of the capitals of the ancient empire of Persia. And we meet at the beginning the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, as the Hebrew text have, or Xerxes in Greek. And we meet his wife Vashti, and we learn that Ahasuerus deposes Vashti because she won't come when he wants her to, and she won't present herself before the nobles and be ogled by all the men of the kingdom. So Ahasuerus gets mad and deposes Vashti, and he's got to go find a new queen, and he finds this girl named Esther after this long process of bringing all of these young women into his harem, kidnapping them from their homes, putting them through beauty treatments so that he can abuse them, so he can use them, and then keeps them in his harem. We talked earlier on about how what happens to Esther and the young women of Persia is not a beauty contest. It's not something they opted into. It's not something they chose. They were kidnapped and taken into a harem to be used for the rest of their lives. And so Esther is now in the place of queen of Persia. And we learn in the past chapters that there's this nobleman named Haman who hates Esther's cousin Mordecai. Mordecai raised Esther because she was an orphan. And Haman just hates Mordecai. We don't know why, right? There's no personal reason given in the story as to why Haman would hate Mordecai so much, except that the text tells us that Haman is an Agagite, a descendant of the ancient king Agag of the Amalekites, and that Mordecai is a Benjaminite. He's in the same line as the ancient king of Israel, Saul. Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites and their king Agag, many, many years ago, and he didn't do that. And so now Haman's descendant, or Agag's descendant, Haman, hates Saul's descendant, Mordecai. And it's all about this ancient hatred that exists between these two people groups. And that's what's playing out here. And so this bitterness, this rivalry, this resentment doesn't make any sense in the time and place. It doesn't make any sense in the day that it happens because it's rooted in this ancient feud. These are the Hatfields and McCoys of the Persian Empire, the Amalekites and the Israelites at war with each other. And so Haman's bitterness and his resentment goes way deeper than one man. And it's rooted in this totally nonsensical place because it's just who he is. It's the 
bitterness that he's inherited. And Haman lives into that. And he scratches that itch until he convinces King Ahasuerus to issue a decree for the destruction of all Jewish people. Haman goes and he, he does what the serpent in the Garden of Eden did. And he half lies. He goes to the king and he's like, hey, there's this people group living amongst us. And they don't really follow our laws. They're not like the rest of us. And they're a danger to you, king. And that's where the lie comes in. He plays upon the king's fears. And the king, being an easily swayed, weak guy, says, sure, Haman, whatever you want, go ahead and write out the decree. And that's where we find ourselves. The decree's been written. Now Mordecai, Esther's cousin, has come to her and said, hey, Esther, God put you in this place for this time for this season, so you could save your people. Will you go to the king? And we ended the last chapter where Esther had asked all of her servants and all the Jewish people to fast and pray with her because she was going to go to the king. And she said those famous words, if I perish, I perish. And now, at the beginning of chapter 5, Esther is in the courtyard outside the king's throne room. And you can't imagine how she's feeling right at the moment. Yes, she's technically the queen, but the law is if you go into the king and he doesn't want to see you, you die. It's a death sentence to go to the king. And so she's got to enter this room, even though she's his wife, she's got to enter this room. And if he doesn't extend to her this golden scepter, then she's a dead woman. That's what's going on inside of her heart. All the things, all that she's been through, all the trauma she's endured over the past years, Because it's been years now since Vashti was deposed and Esther was brought in. All the trauma she's endured. All the ways she's been used and abused. And now she's got to be in the place of having the weight of the survival of her entire ethnic group on her shoulders. And she's standing outside the courtroom of the king. She can see in there. He's he's sitting on his throne waiting for whatever's next. And Esther has to work up the courage to go in. Can you imagine how long she stood out there? And we're not told in the text. This is all just speculation, right? But, but can you imagine her standing there? How long does it take for her to work up the gall, the courage, to even step through that doorway, having no clue what her fate will be? Yeah, the king had favor on her once, but he hasn't called for her for 30 days. Clearly, he's not feeling... Like he wants her around right now. And so through this process of fasting and prayer and seeking God's face, she's come to this place where she's saying, okay, if I die, I die. And yet you can have all the resolve in the world, but when the moment comes to actually step through that door, are you going to be able to do it? We've all been there. We've all been in that place where we've, we've decided to do something. We've determined to do something. And yet the moment comes to take that step. And are we going to? I don't know. I, the risk is so big. But the risk if she doesn't is even greater. And so Esther, I believe empowered by the Holy Spirit. The text doesn't say that. That's me speculating again. But I believe empowered by the Holy Spirit. Esther stands in that doorway and she takes that fateful step into the king's presence. And we're told in that moment, the king looked on her and had favor on her. Now, I've told you before, every time in the book of Esther, you read that someone had favor on someone or someone found favor with someone, we're supposed to see the hand of God in that. It's just like Moses gaining 
favor before Pharaoh. We're supposed to see the hand of the Holy Spirit at work there, giving favor to Esther in this moment that she desperately needs it. And so the king looks upon her and is reminded in that moment of all the reasons he wanted her to be queen. And she finds favor in his sight and he extends the scepter. And so the first trial has passed. And she goes to the king and she says, hey, king, uh, dear husband, I want to invite you and Haman to a little party I'm having, a little get together. It's, it's really just the three of us. I, I want to I hang out with you three, you two. So she invites them to, to tea. And Haman gets word of this and he's all giddy about it. I'm being called in with the king and the queen. Haman, it, 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 I don't think Haman's surprised by this. He's got such a high opinion of himself, it seems like. It's just natural, right? Like, naturally, the king wants to see me. Naturally, the queen wants to see me. Of course, I'm the one that they want to have tea with or wine or whatever, right? Date cakes, right? And so Haman's super excited. He goes in, and they have this tea. They have this wine. They have these date cakes. They're just hanging out, spending time together. And in this gathering, Esther says, by the way, I'd like to invite the two of you to another meal. I'd like to invite you to another feast that I'm going to hold for you to. And we can imagine the second one's probably more elaborate than the first. It's, it takes more preparation. This first one was just kind of a on-the-whim thing, on-the-spur-of-the-moment thing. Esther sets this up and has her, her ladies plan this thing. The second one, though, is going to be a bigger affair. It's going to be a bigger deal. And so Haman goes home from this first one. And super excited to tell his family about the honor that he's received. And he gets home and he's telling his family and his friends. He's invited all of his friends over. He's got his wife there. And Haman's like, guess what happened to me? I got called in to the king and the queen. Man, it is, I'm there. I have arrived. I have made it. And then the most ridiculous things happen. As Haman's talking, he's like, but on the way home, you know who I saw? I saw that Mordecai, and it just put a bee in my bonnet. I don't know if anybody ever talks that way, but, right? <laughs> right? Put a snake in my boot. Well, whatever it is. We were talking Westerns earlier, right? So snake in my boot. We'll go with that one, right? Haman's on his way home, and he sees Mordecai, and that's enough to ruin everything. You ever been in that position? You ever been in that space? Something really great is happening in life, something that should overshadow everything, but then that one little thing is wrong. That one little thing in your picture is wrong, and it can ruin everything. That one little thing. It could be a totally irrational fear or irrational thing that you have going on in your head, and it'll ruin whatever else is going on. Haman has just been honored above everybody else in the entire Persian empire, and yet the sight of Mordecai is enough to ruin all of it for him. I just wish that Mordecai would die. And then Haman's friends are really helpful. They say some really helpful stuff. They're like, Haman, here's what you do. Go out to your backyard and build a gallows 75 feet high so the whole city can see it. And then hang Mordecai on it. Now, that's the way our nice English Bibles have cleaned it up for us because we're too, we're too squeamish to take what's actually going on. 
what is actually happening is they say, erect a spike 75 feet high and then impale Mordecai on it. Yeah, right? Uh-huh. That's what his friends advise him to do. So clearly Haman's bitterness has rubbed off on the people that he's spending his time with. His vendetta against Mordecai has become the vendetta of his friends now. And so that's where we end the chapter. Hey, Haman, go build this 75-foot spike in your backyard so you can put Mordecai on it, and everybody in the Persian Empire will know, don't mess with Haman. And Haman naturally thinks that's a great idea, so he does it. He builds a 75-foot spike so that everybody will know Haman is superior to Mordecai. Now, how insecure a man do you got to be to need that? How insecure a person do you have to be to need that? To have all the honors that the king of the Persian Empire can give you, and yet I really need to know that I'm superior to Mordecai and all of those Jews out there. I mean, this is just, this is the evil of bitterness. This is the evil of resentment. This is the evil of, of a root of bitterness welling up within us that leads to demonization and dehumanization and to the destruction of other people. And this is where Haman lives. Haman looks upon Mordecai. And while the king looked upon Esther and found favor, Haman looks upon Mordecai and finds nothing but bitterness in his soul. And it reminds me of another guy who looked upon God's people with bitterness in his soul. If we turn to Acts chapter 7, Acts 7, 58 to 8, 3, where in this part of the book of Acts where uh, this Jesus follower named Stephen has stood up and given this great speech, this great gospel speech about who Jesus is and why he's the king of God's people, why he's the Messiah to come. And then we read at the end of Stephen's speech that there was this young man named Saul there. And here's what we read about him. They dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Acts 7, 58-83. This is the bitterness of Saul. That like Haman, Saul could not handle the existence of these Jesus followers in his midst. He could not take the fact that they would get any attention at all. Saul looked upon Stephen and that root of bitterness stirred up within him so that ultimately it became his outlet for trying to destroy the church of God, trying to destroy God's people, the followers of of Jesus. This is what bitterness does. This is the bitterness that takes root in our hearts. Only most of us in this room, if bitterness takes root in our hearts, we don't have the power to kill 
people. We don't have the power to have people rounded up and put in prison if they make us angry. We don't have the power to write an edict to have everybody like them, whoever them is for us, destroyed. We don't have the power of Haman or of a Saul. And yet Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, if I've hated someone in my heart, I'm guilty of murder. If I've said to a brother, you fool, I'm in danger of hellfire. None of us are immune to the root of bitterness. And though we may not be able to physically kill people, though we may not physically be able to imprison the people that we dislike or who disagree with us or whom we're bittered toward, Jesus says, nevertheless, we can murder them in our hearts. Nevertheless, we can destroy them in our minds. And some of us do have the power to destroy reputations and to take people down and to spread and share our bitterness with others. Some of us do have the ability to shame and to slander other people and to bring them down in other people's estimation. And so maybe we may not murder them physically, and yet we've been guilty of reputation murder. We've been guilty of slander. We've been guilty of trying to take others down who have offended us or put us out. Or maybe we just live in that place. Maybe we just live in a place of bitterness towards someone. Is there anybody in your life that you've ever felt that way toward? Have you ever been there with somebody, anybody? Maybe for some of you, it's a whole group of people. I mean, we live in a world right now where it's entire people groups that people feel that way about. I've had conversations with people who feel that way about every single Muslim person on the planet. And that root of bitterness has taken hold And it's eating us away as a people and as a society. And it's causing us to murder others in our hearts. It's causing us to cut them off and push them away. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that if we are secure in Jesus, unlike Haman, who was one of the most insecure people to ever live, if we are secure in Jesus, then that root of bitterness cannot hold on. If I'm rooted in Christ and I know who I am and who he calls me and what he has done for me and the Holy Spirit is living in me and empowering me, he gives me the resources to work through that bitterness. Because I recognize that whatever that person has done to me, whatever's been done to me, however bad it is, my God has endured far worse to love me. The king looked on Esther with favor. Haman looked on Mordecai with bitterness. God looks on us with love. Unconditional, cross-shaped, cruciform love. Even when we are his enemies. Romans 5, such a great place to go. Romans 5, 6 to 11 says this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, that is enemies of God, Christ died for us. 
How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? This is the good news of Jesus. And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Romans 5. When God looked at us with every reason to discount us and to throw us aside, when God looked at us, sinners in his eyes, enemies of God, those who would walk away, those who in our pride said to God, I don't need you, I need to be you. I don't want you, I want to run things myself. I don't need your guidance, I can run my own life. When we looked at God and said, you are inconsequential to my life, God looked at us and said, oh, my dear child, You don't even know what you need. You don't even know who you are. You don't even know who I made you to be. You don't even know the depths of my love for you. And when we spat in God's face, he wrapped himself in flesh. And when we slapped him away, he came to us in a manger. And when we wanted to put nails through his hands, Jesus spread his arms wide and said, go ahead. I do this for you. Let your sin crucify me. Let your bitterness, let your bitterness work itself out in my body. Let all that rage and all that pain and all that struggle and all that resentment and all that revenge you want, go ahead and take it out on me. Because I can take it. That's the God we worship. That's the God who came to empower us to give up our bitterness, to allow it to be exhausted in the body of Jesus, to allow it to be exhausted in the cross of Christ so that we can give it up and know who we are and stand where we are and say to anybody who would abuse us or put us down or cast us off or dehumanize us, no, I am made in the image of God. I am indwelled by the Spirit of God and I'm saved by the cross of Christ. You can't touch me. And because you can't touch me, you're not my enemy. I have been empowered to love as Jesus has loved me to lay down my bitterness as God laid down his right to wrath against us and took it out instead upon his son. That's the good news that I get to live in. That's where my bitterness gets to go. Because Jesus drank the cup of bitterness. He drank the cup of wrath that was reserved for me. Listen to Jesus' prayer in Luke 22. Jesus has been walking with his disciples, and now the night that he is going to be arrested before he is crucified, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and he goes to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he begins to pray. Can we go back to the beginning? (laughs) He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray. Father, 
if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Jesus that night felt the weight that Esther did before she stepped in to the king's throne room. Jesus that night felt all the weight of all of the sin of all of humanity upon him. And we read that he prayed and he was so weak that an angel came to strengthen him. And I love that in the very next verse, it says, being in anguish, he sweat drops of blood. This is after the strengthening. This is after the angel has come to give him strength. He's still in anguish. He's still in pain. And Jesus desperately does not want to drink that cup of bitterness that's been reserved for us. He doesn't want to drink that cup that's coming for him. He doesn't want to take on the death of the world so that he can give us life. In that moment, his flesh is weak and he needs the strength of the Father and he's still in anguish. And like Esther stepping into that throne room, Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Esther could say, if I perish, then I perish. Jesus goes in saying, I will perish. There's no question. And my perishing will be the life of the world. Jesus knows exactly what he's walking into. There's no question in his mind. And it only makes the anguish greater. And yet, for the love of the people, for the joy set before him, as Hebrews 12 tells us, Jesus endured the shame of the cross for you and for me. And he let our bitterness crucify him so that he could overcome our bitterness. He let our sin take his life so that he could cleanse us of our sin. He let our unholiness crucify his body so that we could be made holy. That is who you are. And when that's who you are, you have the strength and the resources to give up bitterness. So as the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, to give up bitterness, to give up backbiting, to let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from us along with all malice. This is the strength and the reserve that we have in Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to think it's always going to be super easy some of us have roots of bitterness that go way deep and that we're going to work on for a long time. We're going to be like Jesus in the garden who even after we've received the strength of the Holy Spirit still have to do the hard work of taking the next step and it's going to take time. But in the community of God's people, walking together, lockstep, arm in arm with other image bearers of God who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them who have been redeemed by Jesus and made holy in God's sight. We can do this work together. 
of laying down our bitterness, laying aside our malice, of looking upon even our worst enemy as someone made in the image of God for whom Christ died just as he died for me, who God loves just as deeply as he loves me. We can look upon our deepest enemy and see the cross on their behalf just as it stands on our behalf and see the empty tomb on their behalf just as it's been emptied for you and for me. This is the beauty and the power of being united to Jesus Christ and being united to his people. And so, before we come to the table, I want you to take a moment, a silent moment, and ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind anyone in your life, whether it's an individual or a group or a whole ethnicity group, whatever it is, a whole political tribe, I want you to take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind anyone who you've nurtured a root of bitterness against. Ask God to reveal to you anyone that you're harboring any malice toward. And now we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray for the good of that person or that group of people. We're going to confess that we have been Haman. God, we are before you now confessing that in our own hearts, Lord, We have been Haman. We have nurtured bitterness and malice. Now, in this moment, Holy Spirit, would you miraculously relieve that bitterness? Would you implant within us a heart of love for our deepest enemies, for the people that we are most likely to dehumanize, to demonize, to look down upon, to cut off from the offer of grace that you have given us in the cross and empty tomb. Work in us a heart of love for that person. And God, if in your sovereign will and wisdom you choose that we should work through this bitterness over time, that we should work through these feelings over time, that there is value in the process, Lord, and you choose instead of relieving us miraculously now to let us walk through that process. I pray, Lord, that you would begin to change the hearts of the people in this room right this moment, that that process would begin in this moment, Lord, and that this community would be a place where we can come and we can bring our confessions and our bitterness and our Hamanishness and lay it before one another and be patient and bear with one another in love as we walk toward healing and wholeness. Holy Spirit, give us the resources to pray for the good of the people that we are most tempted to hate, that we are most tempted to to nurture a bitterness toward. And we pray, Lord, now 
for all of our enemies. We pray for their good, for their flourishing. Most importantly, that if they are not followers of Jesus, Lord, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they would be filled and indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that they would be brought to a place where they too can confess their wrongs, and together, Lord, we can bring unity, and that, Lord, the mending and the restoration that will happen in the relationships through this moment, Lord, will be a testament and a standing Ebenezer, to the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and to the will of our good God and Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.